For May 18th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today we'll be speaking with Justin Gertis, an independent journalist who covers energy and the environment for Forbes, Yale Environment 360, Smithsonian Magazine, The Guardian, and other publications. Justin is the author of a new book on Denmark's energy transition entitled Quitting Carbon, How Denmark is Leading the Clean Energy Transition and Winning the Race to the Low-Carbon Future. In percentage terms, Denmark is the world leader in energy transition as well as the king of wind power. Denmark's Vestas Wind Systems is one of the largest wind turbine manufacturers in the world. On a per capita basis, Denmark has installed more than one and a half times as much wind power capacity as any other nation. In 2015, Denmark supplied a remarkable 42% of its total annual electricity with wind. And by 2020, it plans to use wind to meet fully one half of its electricity demand. Today, Denmark's electricity grid is over 40% renewably powered, and the country is aiming to reach 100% renewable electricity by 2035, and then 100% renewable energy in all sectors by 2050. It's already a fairly frequent occurrence for Denmark's wind generation to meet more than 100% of the nation's electricity for hours at a time, exporting the surplus to Norway, Sweden, and Germany. Denmark also plans to reduce its domestic greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2020 relative to 1990 levels, without the use of carbon credits, 10 years ahead of the proposed EU target. Denmark's largest energy company, Dong Energy, is part of the reason for the country's success. 10 years ago, it was one of the most coal-intensive utilities in Europe. Then it decided to embrace energy transition. It has reduced its coal consumption 74% since 2006, and now says its reduction in CO2 emissions accounts for more than half of Denmark's total CO2 reduction since 2006. Dong Energy replaced coal and gas with biomass at a number of its power plants, constructed huge offshore wind farms in European waters, and claims that it has built as much as one quarter of the global offshore wind capacity. No matter how you look at it, Denmark is an incredible energy transition success story, and I'm very pleased to have Justin join us on the show to talk about his book. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Justin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for the invitation. So what prompted you to write this book on Denmark's energy transition? So it's kind of a two-part thing. So one, very simply, is I thought that Denmark's energy story really needed to be told and, and hadn't been told in a, a kind of a comprehensive way. So I think most people who are kind of vaguely aware of, of Denmark 
they know some things that are kind of kind of the guideposts. You know, they know about the bike culture in Copenhagen and they know about the, you know, ubiquity of wind turbines. And occasionally Denmark will make the news when they set a new uh, wind energy record, you know, if the uh, annual record for electricity production or, you know, recently they've had days where they've been exceeding 100% of their consumption from wind. And, and those will make international headlines and, it, and it's great that Denmark is in the news. But to my mind, there hadn't really been, and at least in the English language, a comprehensive overview of this decades long story in Denmark, really since the mid seventies of what they've done, how they went about it, not just for a general audience, but even getting into some particulars of policy details. So one, it's just, there was kind of a void there. And I really thought I could fill it in. And two, it was, I was kind of uniquely qualified, if I can humbly say so, to tell that story. So I, in late 2008, I went to work for a publishing house and think tank in Copenhagen called Monday Morning. And this was, as most of your listeners will know, this was in the lead up to COP15. Denmark and Copenhagen were going to be hosting the international climate negotiations, the summit at the end of 2009. So there was really kind of a, a ferment of interest in climate change and climate action in Denmark at the time. And this publishing house, they were really ramping up their coverage of climate change topics and they needed a native English writer and editor to kind of handle their in-house reporting and publications on climate energy. So just sheer by happenstance, I saw a posting for this job in, in Copenhagen and very short notice went and, and interviewed in Copenhagen. And, you know, within three or four weeks, I was in Copenhagen. Wow. So for, you know, most of the next 14 months, I was working and living living in Fredericksburg, which is basically a, a kind of a suburb surrounded by Copenhagen and working in Copenhagen city center. So, you know, I, I got a really good upfront view of, of what was going on in Denmark and got a, a good feel for the culture there and the political culture, is especially, which I know we'll get into. But for me, it was just really fascinating. You know, remember the, the timing of this, this was, you know, late 2008, this was the run up to the end of that presidential election. You know, there was hope from President Obama, well, later President Obama, but, you know, we'd also come off of eight years of a oil and gas dominated administration in the United States. You know, we were not yet to see what we will later see in 2009, 2010, with all the promise of the, the stimulus funding and the ramp up of utility scale projects in the United States. So when I got to Denmark, it was just so refreshing because the political conversation there was was so much different than yeah. what I was used to in the United States. So, yeah. I mean, on a number of levels, it was not just political leaders, but it was, and I think this is really critical, it was the the business leaders. So there was a, uh, a right of center government in power at the time when I got there in 2008. And the particular culture there is, you know, you don't have climate change deniers in the right of center parties in, in Denmark, you know, across the board, they all believe in climate action. So the language I was hearing, you know, immediately from the prime minister and from various other ministers was all in support of, of climate action. And from the business leaders, you know, you heard the same thing. You heard they not only did they also believe in climate action, but they were lobbying government officials to act faster. 
Well, what a what an amazing opportunity and an interesting time to be going over there. So let's go ahead and dive into the whole question of Denmark's energy transition and how they're doing it. So just starting from the beginning, when and why did Denmark embark on its energy transition plan? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So there were some early kind of shoots, if you want to call them. So there's a long, long, long history of Denmark as a wind pioneer. And I go into this in the book, you know, as far back as 1897, there was a a gentleman who started a wind energy testing center, primitive, of course, but so, you know, going more than a century, there's at least a history of wind energy innovation in Denmark. Fast forward to the mid fifties, there was an engineer by the name of Johannes Juul, who created a, a three-bladed 200-kilowatt turbine called the Getzer machine, which is basically the kind of the predecessor, the, the ancestor to today's wind turbines. So there'd long been a history in Denmark of innovation, especially in wind. But as far as what we think of now as the political framework and this decades-long process going up to the present day, the trigger really was the oil shocks of the 1970s. Denmark was very, very hard hit by those oil shocks. You know, at the time in the mid 1970s, Denmark was 94% dependent on imported oil for its energy consumption. So, you know, very hard hit. And, you know, it's so fascinating to speak to Danes today. And this is across the board, the way that those events entered the national psyche. I mean, it really can't be overstated how much it permeated the culture. I can't tell you how many times I talked to Danes, and this was even Danes born after those events, who would tell me the same story. And that was, you know, the conservation measures that the country had to put in place. You know, everybody describes the car-free Sundays. Not too long after I was in Denmark, I remember listening to a speech by the then prime minister. And, you know, in her speeches, she would refer to the oil shocks and the imprint that those events had on the country. And, you know, basically just realizing that they didn't want to be vulnerable like that again. So it was very much, we had to firm up our energy security. We had to get off of imported oil. So the trigger was those oil shocks and realizing that they had to diversify. You know, one of the things that you pointed out in the book that I thought was really interesting about that is that, you know, the U.S. experienced the same shocks in the early 1970s and particularly the 1973 Arab oil embargo. And while the United States moved on after those initial shocks and when gasoline prices came back down and everything started to flow again. The U.S. really abandoned its energy transition efforts, but Denmark did not. And one of the things that was really interesting to me about that was that 1972 or 73 is when Denmark's part of the North Sea oil field started producing, which is one of the biggest oil fields in the world. And even so, it continued along with its energy transition plan. It adopted an energy action plan in 76, 
which, among other things, called for a switching from oil to coal for power generation. Then it adopted another plan in 1981, establishing energy certificates for energy-efficient buildings. And then in 85, it rejected nuclear power in favor of developing more wind. And then in 86, it made a push for small-scale combined heat and power systems, and, and so on, right on up to the present. And in fact, by 1997, it had gone from being 94% dependent on imported oil to being a net energy exporter, which is just a remarkable turnaround for 20 years. So why do you think Denmark continued on with its energy transition strategy since those early shocks in the 70s, where the U.S. abandoned it? Yeah, it's such a great question. And you know, you could probably write a PhD dissertation about the topic, but I would say it's, it's definitely a complex answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of walk through what I think the answer is. So there is supposed to be this uh, idea of the, you know, the resource curse of countries that are endowed with, with oil and gas resources. You know, they're going to, to be holdouts and that they're going to delay. But as you said, it really wasn't the case in Denmark. And for one thing, I think oil and gas did not make Denmark wealthy in the same way as, you know, say Norway with their $860 billion sovereign wealth fund. But I think also maybe there was the, the knowledge that, well, for one, the, there was the, the gas find in the North Sea in the seventies. Obviously it took a while to ramp up. So I think that was part of it. There was the delay from the oil shocks. There was the find. So Denmark was already starting to think about needing to uh, move toward energy security, even by, you know, the mid seventies, late seventies before that, that oil and gas production really ramped up. So this process was already kind of rolling before the oil and gas started kicking in. So there was that, I think. I think too, there was just the, the legacy of those oil shocks that the country was not going to allow itself to be vulnerable again. And I don't know if there were forecasts that really had it pegged that, you know, how big the fines were going to be and when that peak was going to hit and, and how long they could rely on that resource. But, mm. you know, it, it really, as you point out, it, it really wasn't that long. Denmark became a, a net energy exporter, but it didn't really last a long time. And so I think the latest numbers I saw Denmark is now something on the, the order of about 89, 90% self-sufficient with energy. So you know, they've, they've already seen that they, they can't rely on oil gas. Oil well, that's, gas. that's true. As you pointed out, you know, it had become a net energy exporter by 1997, but by 2004, the Danish North Sea oil production had peaked. Exactly. So that was only seven years later. Right. So already there's the consciousness there that this isn't going to last, you know, we, we've got to put ourselves on a different footing. So, and maybe like, you know, the U S had been the world's largest oil producer in the earliest part of the 20th century. So we had in the U.S. this whole institutional memory and this notion of, of or even an identity of being a big oil province. And Denmark didn't really have that same identity, I think. Yeah, I think you're definitely right there. Denmark never really became known as an oil exporter in the way that, that Norway was or that were the UK or obviously OPEC countries. So yeah, I don't think it was part of its identity in quite the same way. And so then as far as you were asking about the the legacy of, of and the continuation of the legacy of moving forward with the transition, 
I really think there are three pieces to it and I'll, I'll kind of briefly walk through those and then we can go into more detail later. But first, I think it's just the, the political will, political consensus in Denmark. So just by the, the complicated nature of its politics, Denmark traditionally has these coalition governments that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, for one party to to have enough seats in parliament to hold power by itself. So by nature, you have to have these kind of fragmented coalitions, which breeds an environment where you have to cross party lines to get to get anything done. And especially for there have been a series of these energy agreements that have passed in Denmark, usually spaced about, I don't know, eight or 10 years apart. And so there have been just kind of these step ladders of progress in Denmark where they've agreed to these, these energy agreements. And the history in Denmark has been that they have enjoyed very broad support across left and right of center parties. And there's a, a section in the book where I just, I try to, to go into this in a little bit more detail. There was a really good interview that I include in there with a gentleman named uh, Bo Littegaard. He is a, uh, a very well-known kind of public intellectual, I guess you would say, in Denmark. He's now the editor of, of one of the big papers there, but he's also a historian and he was a diplomat and such. But he was describing this culture and, and saying that because you have this, this consensus-based political system, it makes it so that once uh, policy reforms have been into place, although you may achieve incremental progress, once the policies are in place, they are hard to dislodge because you have right and left to center parties agreeing to it. So even if the government shifts a year or two later, it's very hard for the party now in power to go against an agreement they had agreed to previously. So I guess just there's by the nature of Danish politics, there is stability there. Two, something that is, it's coming into place more in the United States recently, especially in the last two or three years, and that's the support of large emitters and uh, industry in Denmark. So some of the biggest companies in Denmark and ones I focus on in the book, like Danfoss and Grundfos, they are firmly behind the energy transition. In fact, uh, especially in the case of Danfoss, their bills and businesses built upon energy efficiency solutions. So you have a difference there where these very powerful business interests their own earnings depend on being able to to export these green technologies. And then very quickly, the, the kind of the last of the, the legs in the three-legged stool, if you can call it that, is citizens have a stake in the energy transition in Denmark. So not only is there this long history of, of wind deployment and wind innovation in Denmark, but there also is a long history of local ownership of wind in Denmark. So, you know, even from the the early 80s, there was a tax credit available. I think it was 30% of the, the cost of turbines, which really jump-started the industry. And you had this flourishing of uh, of co-ops owning turbines with, with just local citizens owning shares. So the transition in part rests on the financial support of your common Dane, 
and giving it a, a resiliency that it might not otherwise have. That's a great overview of the whole kind of big picture of how it's working and, and why people feel so supportive of it. And I do have some questions lined up to kind of dig down into each one of those points. So before we go there, though, let's just kind of outline for people who don't know what the targets are. So Denmark's targets now are to get all heat and electricity from renewables by 2035 and to be entirely fossil fuel free by 2050. How do they expect to do this, particularly doing away with petroleum products for transportation by 2050? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That last part, of course, it's going to be the, the tricky one for everybody yeah. is the, is the trend decarbonize, decarbonizing transportation. So, so you're right. The goals are to be, I should say there was a, an, the, an energy agreement agreed to in March of 2012. And I described that it's kind of the, the culmination of this decades long process. It's not the end of the process, but as far as setting the, the targets on the horizon, that March 2012 agreement, that was the one that put in place this 50% target for wind power by 2020. And it also included the fossil fuel free target for 2050. So, you know, importantly, you had those long term targets put in place, sending the signal to uh, the business sector to make investments and they had stability going forward. And then subsequent agreements kind of fleshed out, fleshed out the details. And there were agreements that provided some mid range targets. And you're right, there was, you're supposed to be coal free by 2030. And then you're supposed to be coal and natural gas free, at least in the heating and electricity sectors by 2035. And there are a whole host of ways they plan to go about doing that. So most importantly, they are moving away from coal in the, the power sector. And this has been a process uh, ongoing for years, but especially ramping up in the last five years or so. And the main way they're doing it is by converting the existing coal-fired generators to biomass. And so I, I talk about several in the book, including the, the large... Uh, power plants that are kind of co-adjacent to the, the Copenhagen metropolitan area. Each of those units surrounding Copenhagen and then the big thermal generators outside of Aarhus, the, the second city of Denmark, are all shifting to biomass. So in that way, you're pushing coal out of the, the power mix. They're also trying to basically electrify everything, if I can put it that way. So and this is, of course, especially going to be important in the transportation sector. It also applies to, to the heating sector. So Denmark had put in place a couple of policy measures back in 2013. They banned oil-fired furnaces, excuse me, boilers in uh, new construction. And then they had a later target to try to phase out oil-fired units, boilers from uh, existing buildings, uh, especially if they could connect to a locally available heat source, which in Denmark is uh, mainly district heating systems, which we can get into in a little bit more detail later. And then they're also trying to move to to heat pumps, electrically powered heat pumps, especially in cases, again, where maybe you're in a rural area and you can't tie up to a district heating system. So there's a whole lot of different elements to it, but it sounds like biomass is going to be a big fuel source for them in the future. 
Do you have any idea where they intend to get this biomass and how much of it would really be considered sustainable? Yeah, that's, of course, a very, very contentious and, and fraught question. I know there have been a lot of uh, recent stories written about it, especially in the context of the big Drax plant in the UK that's been importing pellets from uh, the southeastern United States. So I, I do go into this in quite a bit of detail in one of my chapters, the chapter on Copenhagen, where I'm talking about the conversion of the units there. I know it is very important to the energy companies and to the policymakers in Denmark that it, the biomass be sustainably sourced. I mean, it was stressed again and again. And for Copenhagen, what was called Copenhagen Energy, it's now known by a different acronym, they're in particular stressing that they were going to be trying to rely on straw and other kinds of waste material that did not need to be dried and pressed into pellets. Because part of the concern is these imported pellets, you're burning energy in some cases to to dry them and to get them prepared to be put into a boiler. That's true. So I, it's it's very much a concern and, and it's, it's good you're asking about it. So I know that there was a policy put in place in Denmark in 2015 about sustainably sourcing biomass. I know they're trying to, as much as possible, rely on biomass sourced locally. So, you know, there's a big, very, very big ag sector in Denmark. So they're trying to source as much locally as they can and then try to put regulations, restrictions in place on biomass that is imported to Denmark. As far as I know, they have not been as heavy of importers of biomass material as the UK has been, especially from, you know, the big concern about the biomass that has been imported there is that it's coming from plantations in the southeastern United States. As far as biomass that's been imported into Denmark, as far as I know, most of it has been coming from its Baltic neighbors. So countries fairly close by. Interesting. And then I, another point I always like to add, and I, and I talk about this in the book, is um, a critical thing you have to remember is that the power plants in Denmark are so much more efficient than your typical thermal generator. So because uh, just about every large generator in Denmark is connected and is part of a, a combined heat and power system, uh-huh. the thermal efficiencies are much, much higher. So, you know, a, a conventional decades old coal-fired power plant, you know, might have a 40% efficiency rate. The best natural gas plants combined cycle, you know, have upwards of 55, 60% uh, efficiency. In Denmark, because you have combined heat and power in these stations, they're some of the most efficient in the world. They're upwards of 90, 92% efficient. Right. So, you're getting so the each unit of biomass burned, you're getting a lot more of that that unit of fuel. So in that sense, the systems in Denmark are are much more efficient than you know competing systems in in UK or or elsewhere might be. That's really interesting, and and it, and it makes all the sense in the world. It also, in my mind, I've got kind of this niggling question in the back of my mind. I was like, okay, this all sounds great. Denmark is really, in very many ways, uh, kind of a first mover in being a comprehensively energy transitioned country or getting in that direction. And they can take advantage of all this biomass from places like the Baltics. But if you take 
all the rest of the countries in Europe and they try to follow that same path, there's not going to be enough biomass for them to all do the same thing. Yeah, no, you're right. You're definitely right. I, I do think that most most policymakers and you know even if you ask Dong Energy, which is the, the big state-owned energy company, I do think they think of biomass as a, a transition fuel long-term. And that's because, again, I think they're looking at Denmark is so blessed and endowed with wind that even in the, again, in the heating sector, there's going to be a transition to electric boilers to, hmm. to kind of, to sop up that very plentiful surplus wind in the country. And so I even, I mentioned this, one of my favorite case studies in the book, which is the Droningland solar district heating system. One of the guys who runs the plant, he was, you know, pleading with his chairman to, to be able to install an electric boiler. So, and this was in a very, very small village. You know, I think it was a population of 3,500 people wanting to move to electric heating, or at least in part. So I think it's, uh, it's very much the idea that because there's questions about sustainably sourcing biomass and because Denmark is so blessed with wind that they're going to try to electrify it as much as possible. Yeah, because in the long run, one would think there actually is enough wind energy and marine energy in Denmark to run the whole country in the long run. They could probably do that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And that's something that was mentioned in the the Danish Energy Agreement in March 2012 again, was uh, trying to provide some early seed funding for the wave sector, which is you know very, very nascent in Denmark. But as you say, there's, there's definitely promise there. All right. So that all makes sense kind of from a... Um a big picture perspective to drill down into the transportation question a little bit. Oh, I mean, sure. Obviously yeah. it's obviously if they're going to dispense with fossil fuels, they're going electric for transportation. There's kind of like, un unless there's some anti-gravity device out there, what else would it be? <laughs> but definitely, I wonder how much of that in their conception is electric cars, how much of it is rail, how much of it is, I mean, it's, obviously a big bike culture maybe they've got some electric bikes in the right, in, right, in right. the planning there like what, what do they think the mix of that is going to look like sure yeah no I'm, I'm glad you followed up with going to transport so so one for very obviously as you say there, there's no getting around that you know eventually tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of ev batteries spread across denmark are going to be not just a, a grid stabilizing tool but the way that at least uh, most passenger vehicles are going to be powered. It's going to be electrified. There's no question about that. But critically in, in Denmark, they are not looking as uh, in just a, a car centric context. So you're very right. You know, especially Copenhagen is, is famous for its bike culture. And the idea there is to ramp it up even further. I mean, it, it's hard to conceive of especially in the U.S. context, the numbers that they've hit in Copenhagen. So I can give you just my my own personal example. You know, I mentioned I, I lived in this, basically you'd say a, a kind of a suburb of Copenhagen called Fredericksburg. I had a 15-minute a commute by bike. And so, you know, I had the opportunity. I could have walked to a metro station and taken the metro each day, but the you know, the metro was, is very expensive. The metro in Denmark, it's the, the most expensive transport 
system in the world. So, you know, I very quickly learned what all the, the Danes know, which is it's much cheaper and it's much faster to go by bike. So uh, that's what I did, you know, for 14 months, no matter the weather, no matter how cold it was, I rode my bike in January to work each day. And they've achieved remarkable rates, you know, the, the mode share of bike, you know, people getting to school and to work in Denmark by bike is 45%. Yeah, wow. it's, it's just, it's incredible. So it, you've got to, you've got to go online and see, you know, there's various sites that have taken videos of the morning rush hour commute on the busiest thoroughfares in Denmark and by bike. And it's just, you see dozens, if not hundreds of bikes queued up at major intersections. You know, the the route that I took to get to the city center in Denmark was no Brogeo. And this was, I believe still is, the heaviest traveled bike route in all of Copenhagen. And there's something like, you know, it's it's tens of thousands of riders using the system in the early morning hours, each hour getting into the city center. So it, it's, it's just incredible. And uh, at least in the, the Copenhagen context, the idea is that we're not going to really rely so much on on vehicles. We're going to try to get people out of cars as much as possible. So they're investing money in expanding the already fantastic bike infrastructure in Copenhagen. They are installing what they call bicycle superhighways to connect the city center of Copenhagen to the suburbs. So in some cases, you've got communities that are on the order of, you know, let's say 10, 15, 20 kilometers from the city center. They want to make it so that they have these really flat, if possible, nice level, really well paved, well lit bike paths that give people the incentive to make that trek by bike from an outer suburb into the city center. And it's working. You know, I describe one of the first of these built in in the book and they're already seeing people shifting from driving to going by bike because they have this new option that is available and it gives them a direct shot to the city center. So they're trying desperately to get more people onto bikes and then onto transport too. I mentioned it's expensive, but they are, they're trying to at least give people more options by expanding the system. So if you've traveled to Copenhagen recently, much of the city center is a construction site because they are building what they're calling the city ring, which is a, a new line of the metro that's going to open in mid-2019. And it's going to open all at once. I think there's something on the order of uh, at least a dozen or so stations that are going to come online. And the idea there is that there's a Danish law that says that um, the goal is to have basically anyone in a city in Denmark be no more than, I think it is 650 meters from a transit station. So once the city ring new subway system goes online, Copenhagen will achieve that. So it's very much making it so that basically anywhere you are in Copenhagen, you don't have an excuse, you know, not to take the metro or not to go by bike. Yeah, I've, I've seen that bike system in Copenhagen. Now that was almost probably 20 years ago that I was there, but I was amazed, uh, especially on the morning commute at just the phenomenal amount of bike traffic. It's truly um, something to see. But uh, I wonder how much of the country, I mean, kind of sort of outside Copenhagen, how much of the country's transportation is currently being served by rail or how much of it they think will be served by rail? I don't have a good sense of the, uh, you know, if you're comparing car traffic to, to rail traffic. I do know there is a very extensive 
state-run rail system that connects you know all of the major major cities. And you can take rail from from Copenhagen to Aarhus, or from Copenhagen to Odense, or to to Aalborg. So you know all of the the major metro areas in Denmark are reachable by rail. I should also say too that you know you're talking about disincentives for cars. Perhaps the the biggest one is just the incredible expense of a car in Denmark. So up until very recently, there was a 180% tax on new cars in Denmark. And so not only was it expensive to buy a car, it's very expensive to operate a car because of, of fuel taxes. So, you know, I was always amazed and I would always remark to people, I mean, you really, really have to want a car in Denmark because of just the incredible expense. That's really interesting. You know, the North Sea, once again, is one of the world's most prolific oil provinces. Denmark has 19 oil fields in the North Sea, which have been producing since 72. And referring back to, as, as you put it earlier, the resource curse, I mean, one of my principles of energy transition is that countries that have oil and gas will be the last to switch off of it. But Denmark is such a, a clear exception to that rule. And, and even though the North Sea production peaked in 1999, Danish North Sea production peaked in 2004, and the North Sea is now producing a quarter of what it did in 1999, it's still a very significant resource. And yet, Denmark has been aggressively pushing its people away from oil, uh, trying to leave oil before oil leaves it. And I just think that's remarkable. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's almost mentally hard to, to grasp, right? Because yeah, oil and gas are supposed to be this blessing for a country, you know, something that obviously is fought over. But uh, in Denmark, I just, it, they just don't seem to uh, appreciate it in that way. They don't think of it in that context. So we should probably talk a little bit about cost, since that's the only thing that critics of energy transition ever seem to care about. I think one of the really interesting things about Denmark's approach is that they not only look at just the cost of doing energy transition, but also at the cost of not doing it. And you write how Martin Leidegard, the Minister for Climate, Energy, and Building, explained to you that the cost of to Danish society of investments in energy efficiency and renewables in 2020 will be about 3.5 billion kroner, but that they will save 6 billion kroner by importing less oil, coal, and natural gas, and simply being more energy efficient and producing more renewable energy. Now, this seems like an obvious way to look at the costs and benefits, but I don't think I've ever heard a single elected official in the U.S. talk about it that way. Yeah, you're right. It didn't... It's so uh, encouraging and refreshing, right, to hear. It's almost uh, a bit tiring to hear about the cost, the cost, the cost, but not to talk about the avoided cost, right, the avoided fuel costs by, by moving to, to cleaner sources of energy and by, you know, kicking oil and gas. Uh, I should say he's now a, a former minister. When I spoke to, to Martin Lidegaard, that was just after the March 2012 energy agreement was signed, I was happened to be there a few days afterwards and, um, you know, spoke to him in his office. It's interesting. He, he later went on to be, uh, the foreign minister in, in Denmark in that same government. So very well respected. But it's, uh, it was very interesting that he, he put it in those terms because the current government, and I, I'm, I can go into this maybe a little bit later is probably wouldn't be so keen to put it in quite the same way. The current government 
there was a uh, national election in June of 2015. It was a very, very narrow win for a center-right coalition government. And the party that's now in power, Venstra, uh, just so happened this was the party, the, the lead party when I was there originally in 2008 and into um, 2009, they are, let's say, much more focused on current cost, and that's because of just the the current economic situation in Denmark. So this this government is facing deficits, and so they are uh, they're more willing to talk about cost than the previous left of center government was, as far as looking as the uh, you know the budget line item cost of energy transition. Hmm. In your book, you talk about Denmark's bi-legal system, which I take it is a little different than the bi-legal system we have <laughs> here in Colorado. <laughs> what is that program? Yeah, this is, this is fascinating. So this was described to me when I, I made a reporting trip to Denmark in uh, the fall of, of 2012. And so I was talking with a, an engineer with what was then called Copenhagen Energy. And he was describing, we were looking out into the, the harbor. You can't miss it. If, you, if you've ever flown into Copenhagen, there are a, a line of 10 two megawatt turbines that are in shallow water in the harbor. And so when you are on the descent into Copenhagen airport, you can't miss, you see these turbines right when they're coming in. And so we were out looking at this, this wind farm and he was mentioning to me how individuals had, had purchased shares. So half of those 20 turbines are owned by individuals, mostly in the Copenhagen area. And so that was kind of the, the precursor to this system that the engineer described to me, which was passed about uh, a decade later. So that the turbine farm in the water in Copenhagen Harbor, I think came online in 2001. And this, this bilegal system came online about 10 years later. So basically what it does is it more formalizes that local ownership. So the idea being you want to give people an incentive to, to say yes to a project. So even in Denmark, you have the, uh, the possibility of running into NIMBYism, you know, maybe not in quite the same way as, you know, parts of the UK or the United States, but it's still a concern. So what the idea was is to give people an opportunity again to have an ownership stake in the energy transition. So under this system, if you are a developer bringing a project to a municipality, you are obligated to offer a 20% share of that project to local investors. Hmm. So you have to, you have to advertise it in a local paper. You cannot make a profit on that 20% share. You have to provide it at cost. And you basically have to offer those shares to local residents within a kind of, I think it's a four and a half kilometer zone wow. first. So they get first crack and they, they sell these shares in increments of a uh, thousand kilowatt hours of annual production. I want to say it's something like 600 or 700 euros to buy a share. So the, the, the idea is when they see those turbines adjacent to their, their town or village, they're seeing them not just as a, you know, an obstacle on the horizon. They're seeing it as, you know, this is making money for me. Yeah. I distinctly remember I made a visit on one of my trip, reporting trips to Denmark. I went to the island of, of Samso. So Samso is probably one of the best known 
energy transition stories that's made its way outside of Denmark. There was a very uh, a very good profile written about Samso in the New Yorker in 2008, I believe it was, by Elizabeth Colbert. And it just so happened I, I went on my trip, I talked to the same farmer who was a wind entrepreneur as she did. And, you know, he put it very well. He owned several turbines. He said, each time when I look over at that turbine and I see those, those blades turning, you know, with each rotation, I hear, you know, I hear the cash register sign, you know, because <laughs> he, he's making money and it's true. So, I mean, it's, it's a small tweak in the way you think about it, but when you see turbines as a, a source of income, and it's a very lucrative source of income for, for thousands of investors in Denmark, tens of thousands of investors, you know, it just, it puts it in a, a different mental framework for people. No, absolutely. And, and something we've talked about on the show before, actually, you might recall in, in the uh, episode four on the energy vendor, we talked about how the democratization of ownership in, in solar and wind in Germany is a big part of why so many people in Germany support it. Definitely. Uh, definitely. There, well, yes. You know, what kind of a return do you think folks are getting for those investments? Yeah. So I, I know I describe in the book in some detail the particular shares for that, the, the middle Grundin wind farm, as it's called in Copenhagen Harbor. I want to say it was, it was staggered. So it was a higher rate of return for the first, I want to say it was first eight or so years. So it was about 12 and a half percent. And then after that, it was a kind of stable return of around 7%. Hmm. So definitely, of course, much better than you can get in a, bank account or even, you know, saving in bonds. So yeah, especially now, <laughs> yeah, I met a lot of people in Copenhagen who bought shares in wind turbines. Interesting. Well, that would certainly contribute to a lot of sort of popular support. Uh, we should talk a little bit about, you know, the support at sort of the parliamentary and, and business level. So you wrote that Denmark's latest energy transition agreement passed parliament almost unanimously and that it had the full support of the business sector. Why do you think that is? And again, how would you contrast that with the U.S.? Yeah, this statistic is so remarkable to me when I think of our current political context in the United States. So that that agreement, the March 2012 energy agreement, it passed with 171 of the 179 members of parliament. I mean, it, it's just incredible. Think about that. This is... <laughs> This is left and right of center politicians voting for a policy that puts in place, you know, being fossil fuel free by 2050. It's, it's just, it's incredible. And, the, you know, it's basically, it was one small party that did not vote for it. And it, it, it's not because they didn't believe in energy transition, as uh, one expert later put it to me. It was more for kind of tactical budget reasons that they did it. So, of course, I mean, you could say it was, it was near unanimous support. So, I touched on it, but it, it just gets to the the reality in Denmark that it's climate action is not political in the way that we think of it as being political because they've they've left behind the ridiculous notion of you know do you believe in climate change or not you know we have you know one of our two major parties that is you know basically beholden to the idea right now that not only should we not act on climate but we don't believe in climate change at all. So in that context, it's difficult to even try to fathom what the conservative politicians in this country are thinking. But in Denmark, at least, they've, they've left that behind. You know, they, they firmly, even right of center politicians, believe in climate action. The only real difference that you could say between 
left of center and right of center politicians in Denmark is the scale and the, the speed of the transition. Again, I kind of touched on this, but the current government, it's a, the Venstra party. Interestingly, they, they were the third biggest party in the most recent election. But again, because of kind of the complex nature of the, the coalitions in Denmark, they were able to put the politician Lars Luka Rasmussen in the prime minister's office. But they have tried to push back a little bit on some of the targets for Denmark most recently. So they still believe in the 2050 fossil fuel free target, but they have tried to say, well, maybe we don't have to necessarily abide by the 2030 and the 2035 targets. You know, they're trying to look at it more of an economic competitiveness issue. They think they don't want to get too far out ahead of their European peers. So, and remember, this is just one party among a coalition in the current government. So the political consensus still holds in the country, although, you know, there are some challenges to it. Well, what about the business sector, though? I mean, are they not, like in the U.S. or, or elsewhere, complaining about the, the high cost of renewable energy, putting them out of business and putting them at a competitive disadvantage to other countries and that sort of thing? No, I mean, you... You really don't hear about it in the same way. I think in part it's because the, what we would call the, the clean tech sector is just, it's so strong in, in Denmark. So I give a couple of examples of statistics toward the end of the book. And that is, you know, it's something on the order of one fifth of Danish exports are from the energy sector. You know, these are companies that are, providing energy efficiency solutions to, to export markets. Another stat I include is, you know, there was one number I came across that 3% of Denmark's GDP can be attributed to sales of clean tech equipment and gear. And this is the highest share of, uh, in the world for that number. Hmm. So I think it really is, it's the clean tech sector is so embedded in Denmark and it is so important, especially in the export market, that, you know, think of the leading companies of Denmark. So another obvious example is, we haven't mentioned it yet, is, is Vestas. You know, Vestas, for a long time, I think they were just recently knocked from the, the number one slot. But for the long time, Vestas was the largest turbine, wind turbine manufacturer in the world. Export market is incredibly important to them. They're active, you know, in markets all over the world. And they're very strongly you know, pushing the government to keep in place policies that promote climate action, you know, at home and abroad. So you don't, I mean, you do hear some grumbling about the high cost of electricity in Denmark. So if you're talking just about electricity rates, Denmark has the highest in the EU, you know, it's on the order of 30 euro uh, cents per kilowatt hour. So obviously very high as far as rates go, but you know, again, it's useful, though, to to talk about electricity rates and to talk about electricity bills, you know, energy bills, you know, like California has some of the highest electricity rates in the United States, but our electricity bills are much more reasonable. So I think because Denmark is so efficient, electricity bills, energy bills are much more reasonable. Yeah, in fact, I remember Craig Morris made the same point about Germany in episode four. They pay high rates in Germany, but everything is so much more efficient that the actual cost to the consumer is about the same as the U.S. 
So I guess on the whole, the Danes must feel like they're getting a pretty good deal for the money that they've spent on energy transition. Yeah, I would say that's generally the case. You occasionally hear that they have to rein in costs. And again, that's mostly coming from the, the current government. And there have been a few cases where they've delayed the timeline for projects because of costs. I describe in the book, there were a couple of the really big offshore wind farms that are planned. So there's one called Horns Rev 3. That's a, a 400 megawatt farm that's due to come online, I believe in 2020. And then there's another one called Krieger's Flak. That's a 600 megawatt wind farm. And that last one was delayed by a couple of years because there was concern about outlays for offshore wind farms. And there is a, a unit on electricity bills. It's called the PSO. It's the public service obligation. It's basically a kind of a surcharge and it's attached to every unit of electricity sold. So it's, you basically can't really avoid it. And so there was some concern that they wanted to rein in the cost for the PSO. So occasionally you'll hear things that we need to, to delay projects to save money. And actually in, in a recent case, delaying actually accrued to Denmark's benefit. Toward the very end of the book, I described the Horns Rev 3 project a tender went out for it recently and it came in, the winning tender was 10.3 euro cents per kilowatt hour, which was a third cheaper than the last tender when it went out. And that was for a 400 megawatt wind farm that Denmark built called Anholt that went online in 2013. So, you know, you can see, and I think Danish consumers see that the industry is achieving reductions in cost, you know, as the offshore wind sector is scaling up, costs are coming down. So because I think Danish consumers see, at least they have that very concrete example of the cost coming down, you know, 30% just in a, after a few years of tender, the last tender, that the industry has the potential to, to keep costs under control. I guess that really is kind of what it comes down to is... The fact that the local industry or the domestic industry can actually make money from it, especially from exporting products, can really make all the difference in terms of their political stance. You know, sometimes I wonder if we if we had a more vigorous renewable energy industry in this country that was actively exporting products to the rest of the world, maybe the business community would have a different perspective on, on the money that we spend on energy transition. Yeah. No, and I, an example I, I love is Dong Energy. So Dong Energy, remember, it's the the predominantly state-owned, you know, Dong Energy stands for Danish oil and natural gas. But fascinatingly... Oh, so it's it's not a name just designed to amuse the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so not only is Dong Energy committed to, you know, in the long term, you know, moving out of, of coal in the power sector domestically in Denmark... You know, one of the, the earliest speeches I remember hearing when I arrived in Denmark was by the, the then CEO describing how they had this long-term goal to flip their generating mix. So at the time it was something like 85% coal, 15% biomass. And they said, of course, the long-term goal was to shift to, you know, 15% coal, 85% biomass, and then eventually to kick coal completely. But now when you say 
the name Dong Energy, most people think of offshore energy. So Dong Energy is probably the premier offshore wind builder in the world. You know, they've built these incredibly large projects off the coast of the UK. And because they have this expertise, they are in really high demand around the world. And, you know, just recently Dong Energy opened an office in Boston because they are very, very eager to get into the U.S. offshore wind market. So it's just a clear case of, this is a, we see this pattern time and again in Denmark. These companies, they were nurtured in the Danish market. They used it as a foothold. They deployed their products or services in Denmark first. They then looked at export markets, growth markets. And because they have this great expertise, they are in high demand across the world. So, you know, it makes perfect sense that, that Dong with so much expertise deploying these really complex and until recent, recently very kind of risky offshore wind projects are going to be some of the first probably to build the first really big offshore wind farms in the United States. Hmm. That is very cool. And, and speaking of cool technology, I think one of the coolest things about Denmark is its use of district cooling and district heating. They're way ahead of the, much of the rest of the world in, in terms of their use of this technology. Tell us a little bit about some of the systems that they're using for that. Yeah, this is, you know, to be honest, this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to write this book because I'm a big fan <laughs> of district energy. So, you know, basically kind of just to put this in context, I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners will be familiar with this, but at least in the United States context, this really usually only comes about when you're thinking of college campus or corporate campuses, you'll have a, a district energy system where you'll right. have a a central power plant and, you know, connected heating to maybe, you know, two dozen buildings on a campus. But we really don't have the district energy, district heating footprint in the United States, certainly that they do in Denmark. So I, I really think it's one of the best, best practices in Denmark that can and should be exported around the world. So you return to, to Copenhagen. So in Copenhagen, 98% of the buildings, you know, residential and commercial buildings in the city are covered by the district heating network. Wow, 98%? I had no idea. 98%. So, and this is, yeah, and so this is, you know, the, again, you've got these kind of mid size thermal generators, thermal power plants, kind of on the, the fringes of Denmark, the Amar complex and the, the Avador complex. And again, those are CHP plants. CHP plants, and um, there's also a really big waste-to-energy CHP plant that's under construction now, too, also at the Amar complex. This is the one, famously, that's going to have a, a ski slope on top. <laughs> so the idea there is you, you use the, the surplus heat, you know, normally vented into the, into the air, but instead harness it, and it's directed into sending heat to homes and businesses via insulated pipes, that carry either steam or, or hot water. So what about the summertime when you don't want the heat? <laughs> no, and again, they've, they've come up with an ingenious solution for that too. So at the same time that, that Copenhagen has this incredibly extensive district heating system, they are also building a district cooling system. So 
this it's not going to be as ambitious. They don't see it as reaching every home or business like the district heating system, but it's starting in the, the, the city center. I visited the very first of these district cooling plants at Adelgeo. This was at a, a former power plant that had been shuttered. And this one, very, very cool. It has an intake pipe that goes out into Copenhagen Harbor. And so it's bringing chilled water from deep under the, the surface there to pre-cool water that then goes into the district cooling system. So you're using this amazing, obviously free resource to, to boost the efficiency of the system. And so then they're, they're expanding this district cooling network to primarily things like shopping centers or hotels or buildings that have data centers. So that, again, they don't envision it to be citywide. And it's primarily because, you know, there's some forecasts for what Copenhagen is going to experience in a world with, with climate change. And they do expect that temperatures are going to increase. And so there will be increasing demand for cooling. I mean, it, you know, people really don't think of it in that way because the, the summer is pretty fleeting in Copenhagen, but there is still a demand for, for cooling. So are you saying that they're using the waste heat during the summer to run this district cooling system? In part, yeah. So I was just about to get to that. So there's a very cool balancing service at work there where obviously the, the heat demand goes down in summer, but the CHP plants are still operating, of course. So part of that surplus heat in the summer is redirected to steam-powered chillers for the district cooling system. So it's just this great kind of synergy where you can use, redirect the waste heat from the CHP plants and direct it to the district cooling system. Right. Makes perfect sense. So speaking of cool technology, I was particularly intrigued by, I guess, former Minister Lettegaard's vision for a super grid that would interconnect the countries around the North Sea. So Denmark, the UK, the Netherlands, and Norway, plus some large offshore wind farms in the North Sea, and the costs would all be shared by the participating countries. Now, that's a pretty ambitious idea, and, you know, we should be skeptical. We've already seen a few such proposals, like the Desert Tech Supergrid plan fail. Do you think this Supergrid concept around the North Sea is really politically and economically feasible? I would say absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. In part because it's already happening, certainly in Northern Europe. If you're talking continent-wide, EU-wide, I still think it's going to happen, but it's going to take much longer. You know, Denmark already has interconnections with Norway, with Sweden, with Germany. And that is how, of course, it's able to send its uh, surplus wind to its neighbors at times when the incredibly high wind production is exceeding demand in the country. But Denmark has very ambitious plans to, to add additional interconnections. So there's going to be interconnect to the Netherlands. And just last month, it was Denmark's grid operator. It's called energynet.dk. The board of the Danish grid operator they approved plans for two new interconnects. So there's going to be an additional one, uh, a high voltage uh, overhead line connecting to, to Germany. But uh, even more ambitious was a, uh, an interconnect approved to the UK. So they're going to build a 700 kilometer 
subsea and land cable called the Viking Line connecting the west coast of Denmark to the east coast of, of the UK. Hmm. And it, it, it's so funny though, you look at a map of Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries, and Denmark, you know, they really are blessed because you look at the interconnects and where Denmark is placed and they are almost like the perfect center of a wheel with this, you know, spokes going out to Norway, Sweden, Germany, and the UK. Right. So they really are geographically blessed. You know, I was just in Berlin recently on a reporting trip and we made a stop at a, an outfit called the Renewables Grid Initiative and had a briefing there. And they were describing very ambitious plans that the EU has for a continent-wide grid. And this includes, of course, you know, interconnects for the Iberian Peninsula, you know, the plentiful sun and wind in Spain and Portugal to be able to be taken up into France and beyond, you know, right. being, being able to carry the plentiful surplus hydro from Norway across Denmark and South. Which, which some people see as potentially the battery of Europe. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, this briefing, you know, there were very extensive plans underway, you know, and they're trying to prioritize the, the best routes to put in place the high voltage DC lines. So, you know, both planning and funding available resources from the EU to get the system built. That's fantastic. I just love that whole idea because, you know, one of the, one of the biggest objections or criticisms or potentially just even a, a straight technical obstacle that people talk about in energy transition is the difficulty of running a grid with variable renewables. And one of the biggest solutions to that is more interconnection, you know, more ability to import and export from other areas. Because typically, in one place the wind isn't blowing, but in another place it is. And if you can ship that power around, you can balance things out a lot better. So it's, it's just really a fantastic possibility there. I think it's I think it's pretty exciting. Definitely. Why do you think Denmark has been so successful with its energy transition strategy? I mean, from the early 70s right up to the present, very consistently, while other European countries have just been unable to set such ambitious targets as Denmark has, or even be as consistent in executing its plans as Denmark has? Yeah, again, it's, it's a great question. You know, I, I've already talked about, even in Denmark, there have been political challenges. And of course, you know, even in, in Germany, there are obvious political challenges. I mean, the, the planning, of course, for the energy vendor, there's not only trying to figure out the transport component of that, but, you know, there are obvious challenges to trying to uh, figure out how to shut down an economically secure way the lignite industry in, in that country. So, right. you know, there are, there are obvious, obvious challenges in each political context that's going to be difficult. But again, I, I think I just have to return to, I guess that was, you know, that I referred to it as the, the three-legged stool before, the political consensus, the buy-in from industry, and having the citizens as financial investors in the transition. All of those complement each other in Denmark, you know, really beautifully. And it's just that, um, you know, you have time and again, really innovative solutions that are coming up in the Danish context, which really give me hope that it 
has staying power. So you have these long-term targets on the horizon and you have that the 2050 fossil fuel free target. So you have stability and certainty, which, you know, these companies always so desperately want to have that political stability and to have the, the policy certainty. And so because of that, the entrepreneurs and the innovators in Denmark are free to do what they do best. And so, you know, one of the favorite examples in the book, I have a couple of them that I describe these case studies. And there's one that's this, uh, it's called the Billund Biorefinery. And so this is, again, it's in a, a small village, but they are building a, a plant that was basically taking what is normally seen as a waste product, wastewater from, you know, basically sewage, turning it into to power and to heat for the district heating system. But the great thing on that is that Denmark has a very strong legacy of not only public-private partnerships, but also great public sector entrepreneurship. So this biorefinery, it's publicly owned. It's it's owned by the Luxembourg municipality. But these really innovative folks, again, they find ways to be great capitalists. You know, and this it's funny thinking of that because of how Denmark has come up in our own presidential campaign talking about democratic socialism and, and Bernie Sanders has talked about, you know, admiring Denmark. But I think it misses just how good Danes are at finding these really innovative solutions. So in Danish law, you aren't allowed to make a profit off of heat. And so really, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny to think of it, but it, and this happens pretty regularly in the power and heating sector context. So and the solution here was, so because you couldn't make profit off of heat, this Billund biorefinery, they created a spinoff called Billund Energy. And that was one so that they would be able to make more money from actually sending more power to the grid. But two, because this, this particular model was in such high demand in Denmark and in the EU because of rules about you're not able to send organic material to the landfill. So you're going to have to find a way to either compost or to harness for energy this, this organic waste. So this biorefinery in Denmark, this Billund biorefinery, they created the spinoff called Billund Energy. And they did it in part because they want to be a consultancy for not only small municipalities in Denmark, but for cities around Europe who are looking to them for their expertise. So there is such a, uh, an embedding in the, the political and business culture now of these strong green practices, of these clean tech solutions, that it's almost like Denmark can't and won't go back. You know, it's just there's such there's such momentum with the energy transition at this point that it's almost like it's uh, it's self-reinforcing. You know, it one reinforces the other because politicians know that green exports are such a strong part of, of the market. And the Danish clean tech entrepreneurs know they have policy certainty. They know that they can take risks and take chances and uh, continually to push for new markets. That, I mean, that's just a fascinating little anecdote, but I guess maybe the short version of that would be that it's, it's very much a cultural thing. It has to do with cultural values, cultural attitudes, the political economy, it all has to do with human arrangements, fundamentally. Yeah. Well, and maybe the last point I'll make, and it's this. 
I think there's sometimes a, a misunderstanding about, you know, people think of, of Copenhagen and they think of Denmark and, you know, they, they sometimes they hear about the achievements it's made and they think, oh, you know, that, that's just Denmark, you know, thinking as if it's just Danes by nature are greener or inherently better environmentalists than, than the rest of us. And I don't really think of it that way from having lived there. And I don't think Danes think of it that way. You know, I gave the example earlier of, of the biking culture in Denmark. You know, there have been studies done, surveys done of commuters in Copenhagen. And when they're asked, why do you bike? It's not because they're not doing it to save the environment. They're not doing it to reduce emissions, or at least, you know, those may be answers, but they're on low on the list. The leading answer by far is because biking is the cheapest, fastest way to get from point A to point B in Copenhagen. You know, it, it's a really a pragmatic thing. Hmm. And it's exactly the same way in the business context. Again, these public and private sector entrepreneurs I've met in Denmark, it's very much about the bottom line. It's very much about these clean tech solutions are cheaper. They are saving money. Again, I, I, one of the great case studies, one of my favorites in the book is, I touched on it earlier, the, the Droning Lund Solar District Heating Farm. So this was, it's so fascinating, so fascinating to me. So this is far north of Denmark on Jutland, mainland Denmark. And so it's not just a district heating system, it's a solar district heating system. So it's a tiny village. You think of the solar heating units that you would have atop a rooftop, you know, on a home. Typically for domestic hot water. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But think of putting row upon row upon row of these, kind of like a, a, a grid scale PV farm, but instead for solar thermal power. And so this small village, and there have been it's a booming industry in Denmark, solar district heating. There's something like five dozen of these systems in the works. So this is this is not concentrated solar power you're talking no, about? No, 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 no. Not, not this for, is actually more like conventional solar hot water, just at scale. At scale, exactly. Huh. At scale. And so in this, in, at Droningland, this plant that I visited, you have row upon row of solar thermal, basically just very simple boxes. You know, they're... They're angled, they're ground mounted, they have tubes running through them with a mixture of water and glycol, glycol so they don't freeze in the winter, collecting heat. And in this particular facility, they, because they're generating surplus in the summertime, they built a storage tank for hot water. So I, I describe it, it looks kind of like a, a Japanese soaking tub that has an insulated cap atop it. And so when that solar thermal field is at working at its peak in the summertime, it's sending surplus heat to this basically big bathtub that's insulated. And so then it can extend the district heating, you know, well into the fall and even into the early winter months. Right. So, and this is, you know, you look at a a solar insulation map. I'm sure we've we've all seen these, where you know people love to compare the solar irradiance of Germany to Alaska, you know. And so Denmark is obviously further north than than Germany is, but it somehow it works. You know, they have these at scale deployments of solar thermal heat, sending it to individual homes via their radiators. You know, heat. And they do it because it's cheaper. The, the gentleman who run this, ran the system, it's, it's again, it's a local cooperative. 
There's individuals own shares in the system. They had to vote on expanding the system on the capital outlay. But he described to me they're saving money and they're saving money from obviously there's the capital cost. But as far as operation costs, there's no comparison. It's orders of magnitude cheaper to run this solar district heating system because there's no fuel cost. And so, again, it's like dames, they're, they're great capitalists. Hmm. That's such a great example. Your story there brought up for me a whole lot of other kind of older references in my mind, but one of them being John Perlin's amazing book, Let It Shine, where he talks about this whole history of sort of these old school box collectors, basically, for solar thermal heat like that that would be used for a domestic hot water system. I mean, those things used to be really common everywhere. They were all over the place in like the 1920s in the United States, especially in California and Florida and, and elsewhere. Thousands and thousands of these units were on rooftops 100 years ago in the United States. And it also reminded me of a system that I saw years ago in Netherlands where they have this Floriade festival, this big flower festival every so often. I don't remember. It's like every seven years or something. And they had put together this solar thermal system, like what you're describing, that would collect heat from some very simple hot water collectors, box collectors, and they were storing that in an underground reservoir. And then they were going to use that heat that collected during the summertime to keep the greenhouses for the flowers warm during the winter. Yeah. No, I just, I, I love these solutions. They get me so excited. And if there's one thing that I could take from my book and say, you know, I wish that this could be exported to the world, it would be, you know, district energy. And I think of you know, district heating, district cooling. And, you know, I think of when I visited that the solar thermal district heating farm in Droningland, I thought to myself, what, this could even be done in Alaska. I mean, you think of those remote villages that are off-grid, they are having to have fuel oil barged in once or twice a year. You know, if a solar thermal system can work in that far north of Denmark, there's no reason why it couldn't work for indigenous villages who desperately need a sustainable way, cheaper way to get heat. Part of the, my intent of writing the book was I, I just thought Denmark has some great stories to share with the world. And I just, I want them to get out. People often hear about Copenhagen. Copenhagen captures the lion's share of, of attention, you know, deservedly so. But, you know, I, I've, I've had the, the great opportunity to visit some of these lesser known villages and sites in Denmark that have some, you know, really valuable and proven and cheaper solutions to share with the world. I couldn't agree more. Wow. Well, this was just a fascinating conversation and so nice to hear it from somebody who's actually gone and seen this stuff with their own two eyes. So thank you, Justin. Oh, no problem. Thanks so much. And really thank you for the invitation. That was Justin Gertis, an independent journalist who covers energy and the environment for numerous publications and the author of a new ebook on Denmark's energy transition entitled Quitting Carbon, How Denmark is Leading the Clean Energy Transition and Winning the Race to a Low Carbon Future. Considering its position as a world leader in energy transition, it's odd how little attention Denmark gets for its innovative approaches to energy. So I hope this interview helped to educate listeners about its remarkable progress and its remarkable ambition. I think Justin is quite right. Many of the technologies Denmark is using, especially low-tech, low-intensity, low-cost, 
old school solar thermal technology could be deployed very effectively in the United States and elsewhere. We just seem to have forgotten about those solutions since cheap electricity pushed solar hot water systems out of the market after World War II. But as I mentioned in the interview, John Perlin's excellent book on the history of solar, Let It Shine, details how in the 1930s, residential solar hot water systems had become commonplace in Florida, California, and elsewhere. In the Miami area alone, as many as 60,000 solar hot water systems were installed in the late 1930s. By 1941, more than half of the Miami population used solar hot water, and 80% of the new homes built in Miami between 1937 and 1941 were solar equipped. In fact, there are still rooftop solar hot water systems in Florida that were installed 90 years ago, which are still in operation. But in addition to reminding us about the very serviceable and inexpensive renewable energy technologies of the past, the Danish example also reminds us that many of the seemingly intractable problems we have in energy transition are really human problems, not technological ones. By reorienting our attitudes, our cultural values, our self-conceptions, and our priorities, energy transition can move ahead much more quickly, effectively, at acceptable prices, and in a way that enfranchises everyone. Imagine what the kind of community ownership model they're using in Denmark could accomplish in a place like the U.S. All it takes is a deliberate structuring of investment programs to ensure that people who live near renewable energy generators have the opportunity to invest in them. And I think it points up an important but often forgotten role that artists, writers, politicians, and other non-technical professionals can play in supporting energy transition. To communicate the values of community effort, community ownership, community responsibility, and community pride in energy transition. In fact, those tasks might ultimately be even more important and more effective in achieving our goals than technological gains are. Energy transition is truly a project in which we can all play essential roles. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The climate investigation site Desmog.com has uncovered an internal report from ExxonMobil subsidiary Imperial Oil, which was published in 1980 and distributed to Exxon's corporate offices. The document stated that, quote, there is no doubt that increases in fossil fuel usage and decreases in forest cover are aggravating the potential problem of increased CO2 in the atmosphere, end quote. DeSmog also discovered a 1969 study written by an imperial oil chemist titled Carbon Dioxide Affects Global Ecology, which explained the connections between burning fossil fuels, rising CO2 in the atmosphere, and the potential effects it would have on future weather patterns and global temperatures. The DeSmog discoveries add to recent investigative research performed by Inside Climate News, the Los Angeles Times, and the Columbia School of Journalism, showing that Exxon conducted its global warming disinformation campaign for decades after internal documents showed a clear concern about how the burning of fossil fuels could contribute to climate change. And all of that backs up findings made by Steve Call in his excellent and deeply researched 2012 book, Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Power which I highly recommend. 
Now, it may not come as much of a newsflash that ExxonMobil actively tried to sow doubt and create public distrust of climate science. But now that these facts are out, it should change the level of credibility that people give to the company's long-range energy forecasts, which consistently show a strong future for fossil fuels and a very minor role for renewables. And it should eliminate the credibility given to the so-called scientists who have sold their reputations to Exxon to publish denialist work. At least, that's what would happen in a rational world. Item 2. India has announced that it plans to shut down 37 gigawatts of its coal power capacity, equivalent to 12% of total electricity generation in a nation that gets about three-quarters of its electricity from coal. The plants are more than 25 years old and have become uneconomical, according to the chairman of the Central Electricity Authority. He said that emissions are the first concern and intends to replace the old plants with newer supercritical units, which are more efficient at the same sites. However, he did not give a timeline. Now, listeners who checked out episode 11 of this podcast on India and coal can probably guess what I'm going to say next. It would not surprise me if these new supercritical plants were never built, and instead, if the country turned to solar. But this is a very encouraging development for the causes of air quality and climate change. Item 3. Ali Al-Naimi, who for the past 21 years has been the oil minister of Saudi Arabia, has been replaced in a royal reshuffle. He will be succeeded by Khalid Al-Fali, chairman of the state oil company Saudi Aramco. The move was not totally unexpected because Al-Naimi had wanted to retire for years, but had been compelled to stay on and lead the oil ministry through the oil market's gyrations of the past few years. It was Al-Naimi who pushed OPEC to maintain its output rather than cut back as oil prices started falling, in a move that has been widely perceived as an attempt to squeeze the U.S. shale sector, which is a much higher cost basis than Saudi Arabia. But in reality, Saudi Arabia and OPEC were only minor players in producing the output surge that helped push prices down. That was overwhelmingly caused by new production from the U.S. and Canada. And Al-Naimi repeatedly emphasized that his policy was not designed to hurt any other producer in specific, but rather that it made no sense for Saudi Arabia to unilaterally withdraw its own ultra-low-cost production in a low-price environment, as it did in the 1980s, a move that Al-Naimi called a mistake by his predecessor. If anyone should curtail production, he said, it should be the high-cost producers, an eminently reasonable position. Now, all eyes are on the 30-year-old Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who recently took over defense and economic planning for the kingdom, and who is assumed to have directed the ministry shakeup. Prince Mohammed's so-called Vision 2030 blueprint, which we have discussed previously on this show, includes setting up the world's biggest sovereign wealth fund, transforming Aramco into an energy and industrial conglomerate, and diversifying the kingdom away from being so reliant on oil revenue. All of this is well known, and no doubt the new leadership will be watched very closely to see how they steer the Saudi ship in an oil market that continues to struggle and cause worldwide pain for oil producers. Although Prince Mohammed is expected to exercise much more direct control over oil policy now, and that Khalid al-Fali will likely not have the independent authority of his predecessor, most observers think it's unlikely that the Saudis will change course from the one established by al-Naimi. But what caught my attention from an energy transition point of view 
apart from Prince Mohammed's Vision 2030, is that Al-Naimi now intends to devote more time to his chairmanship of the Science and Technology University in Saudi Arabia, which studies and prepares for a post-hydrocarbon world. And in a February 23rd appearance in Houston, Al-Naimi said, quote, the problem is harmful emissions we get from burning coal, oil, and gas. The solution is to work on technology that minimizes and ultimately eradicates harmful emissions. Some don't accept this view, but I have faith in technology, end quote. So it seems clear that Saudi Arabia's oil leadership is becoming quite serious about addressing greenhouse gas emissions and supporting energy transition, a point that's all too easily lost amid all the intense scrutiny over what their latest pronouncements mean for oil prices. And finally, item four. Another story that has commanded worldwide attention is the out-of-control inferno near Fort McMurray, Alberta, home of the tar sands. The town has been rendered effectively useless with its 90,000 residents evacuated, the city gas turned off, the power grid damaged, and the water made undrinkable. The fire could burn for months unless there is significant rainfall, and so it will definitely go down as one of the most destructive and costly in Canada's history. So far, the tar sands operations have not caught fire, but more than one million barrels a day of production has been shut in as workers were sent home for their safety and facilities were shut down. Beyond these immediate effects, though, I think there may be an object lesson or perhaps a teachable moment in this tragedy. It may seem gauche to say it while the tragedy is ongoing, which is perhaps why hardly anyone has. But we're all thinking it. This fire raged out of control so quickly because Canada's boreal forest has been tinder dry after years of low rainfall and higher than normal temperatures, and that in turn was undoubtedly related to global warming, to which Canada's tar sands, along with other unconventional sources of oil, have been contributors. That's what the Keystone XL pipeline fight was all about, stopping the spread of tar sands production near Fort McMurray. This fire will be another heavy blow against the economies of Alberta and Canada in a series of heavy blows to its oil sector. Rebuilding Fort McMurray will be key to getting the tar sands operations up and running again, but it won't be easy, because a lot of its former residents are likely to wind up in Edmonton, over 200 miles to the south, or Calgary, several hundred miles even farther south, and rebuilding it will require a reasonable expectation that oil prices will go back up again, and that profitability will return to the tar sands, but that is far from certain. I think there is a non-zero risk here that the tar sands never really bounce back to their former production, and that Fort McMurray never gets fully rebuilt, and that the fights over new pipelines become more or less moot by the hand of Mother Nature herself. There is much to contemplate here, but we've only begun to think through it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>